Well, no, I said those will be the capital of the world podcasts. Oh, okay. Oh, I get it now. Oh, I got it. Those were a, they'll, they'll be a subset of our Los Angeles cinematic community podcasts. I am your leader. You're something. <laughs> that's, that's actually a line you, you dropped on a podcast. It'll be in next week's show. I was brilliant when I said it and funny. Cinematic community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic. Cinematic community. Tell people not to swear the mic around. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good point. Right? You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just been revoked. Are you excited to go to New York? I am. We're going to do a whole host of shows in New York, which I'm very excited about. It's going to be so much fun, man. The hometown set. You get to show me around New York. It'll be my first experience. I've been to a lot of places, but not New York City. That's just pathetic. Hey, man, come on. I've been places. I'm relevant. You're not from Guam. You're from Virginia. You could have gotten on a train at any point. I don't understand that. You guys didn't take like, a field trip to the Empire State Building or What's something? What's even worse is that we, we went to Connecticut. Like, we never went oh, to New York. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Did you take the Amtrak? No, my, my, my pops always drove. Oh, I was going to say, because if you took the Amtrak, you went through the city and right by my house. Mm. Yeah, we just stopped and said, hey, hey, Brian. Never been to New York. This is like, well, you're like one of these people that says, I've never been swimming or I've never ridden a bike. I don't understand those people. No, I've, I've swam and ridden a bike and lots of other things. It's just New York. None of those it. things matter since you've never been to the big city. Well, looking forward to it. Um, uh, I guess that'll be uh, starting next week. We'll get out of here. And, the uh, Capital the of the World podcasts. Capital Podcasting Capital of the World. This week, we went and chatted with uh, Skip Van Leeuwen at the Skip Van Leeuwen Recording Studios. This was our first show on the road. <laughs> this is our first test of our new equipment. And we passed, I think. I haven't heard that show, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that we passed. We recorded something. He was a great guest. I've never been to any kind of motocross, motorcycle, anything in the world. But by the end of it, I wanted to go watch more of it. I'll tell you that much. He's got all the records in there. And um, I watched uh, YouTube videos of all the stuff. And uh, it's it's great. I mean, I've watched some NASCAR, but I never watched motorcycle stuff specifically. And uh, it's next level. All the stunt stuff he would do, he had great stories. Uh, his His stories were very real. And um, I don't want to say in your face, but they were definitely it's worth tuning into. Um, I mean, he discussed his cocaine addiction and his time in the music business and his time jumping, you know, uh, jump through hoops as it were. We um, knew he had been involved with evil Knievel, but we didn't know to what extent. I and mean, they worked together for years doing stuff. And uh, he talks about that again, another great guest. So thank you very much. Skip Van Leeuwen for jumping in with us on cinematic community. And now here he is. Skip Van Leeuwen. In, uh, in 1974 is, uh, is when I went to work for the record company and started my cocaine habit. I mean, uh, everybody thought cocaine was hip and slick and trick, and there wasn't nothing wrong with it and wasn't addicted. And, and, uh, and now my whole life, I, I never smoked a cigarette. I never took a drink of coffee. I didn't even take an aspirin. I exercised, worked out every day. I was, and I think that's one of the reasons why 
some of my friends got killed and maimed at the racetrack is they weren't in good shape. You know, they, a lot of those guys thought getting in shape was going to bed early the night before the race. And, uh, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and that's not so. You know, it takes months and months and months. I mean, when I'd go to Daytona, I uh, would drive all night. I'd get up, you know, sleep in the car, and, and uh, you know, you drive nonstop. I'd get up and uh, out of the car and run three or four or five miles down the down the road in uh, Arizona and Texas, and uh, but I was uh, religious about it. And um, when I got in the record industry, this, uh, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the reefer madness days. They touch you if you smoke a joint and shot in the arm the next day. So I was <laughs> scared to death. The black and white movie was very effective for its time. Yeah, <laughs> Reefer Madness. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, the one image that sticks out is the guy that's like crazily playing the piano while he's got a cigarette coming out of his mouth. He's like, ah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so how did that? How did that really take hold? And what what happened along the way? I guess we'll start here. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I um, got in the record business, and everybody was sort of. Uh, I saw some white stuff on the counter and on the windowsill. I said, "What's that?" He says. Cocaine, I says, oh, cocaine, that's drugs, the narcotics. And so here, try a little bit. So I tried it, and man, I liked it. And uh, so, I mean, uh, it just got more and more and more. And I remember Michael Nesbitt's wife saying, we're sitting around the table at the studio, tooting cocaine, she says, and everybody's saying it's not addictive, nothing else. She says, I suppose we'll be having this conversation five years from now when we're all shooting in our arms. <laughs> and... <laughs> Little did I know, you know. How close they were. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, cocaine was really hip, and it ran free and easy in the record business. i go down and get $3,500 worth of cocaine, call it piano rental. I'd go in the studio and toot everybody up, leave a little bag there for them, and uh, I'd stay till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'd come back the next morning, they're still in there blowing their brains out. And I uh, <laughs> got a lot of recording done, but... Uh, Anyway, uh, uh, as the record business progressed, Michael Nesmith was the president. And Michael Nesmith, you guys, was, was one of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet, ever. I mean, the guy was way ahead of the game, a real visionary, man. He was always uh, ahead of everybody in the record business. Uh, you know, he was in the monkeys, and he made more money than all the monkeys put together because he wrote the songs, you know, Joanna and... Hey, hey, where the monkeys? Michael wrote those, so so he made all the all the big bucks. And when I met him, when I first met him, we became friends. He's walking down uh, Santa Monica Boulevard with a guitar on his back, and um, and so we uh, and then I sold him a motorcycle and and and. Uh, Wait, how do you get from I met him with a guitar on his back to I sold him a motorcycle? How does that go? Well. Uh, he's walking down the street, and he, and, and he well, he, he was coming in to look at motorcycles, and I never heard of Michael Nesbitt, had no idea who he was, and um, and so I sold him a new a new Triumph, and uh, uh, and I watched him go from from the valley floor on, in downtown Hollywood, go to the very very top of Bel Air, on Intello Place, four houses on the street. There was Michael Nesbitt's house here. I mean, swim pools started outside and come up inside his house. And uh, across uh, across the street was Jack Nicholson. Up at the top was uh, uh, Will Chamberlain. And over here was Phil Silvers. And uh, only four people on this street. And I watched Michael Nesbitt go from sunset bottom of the street to the top of the hill. I mean, 
He did, if you give $6 million to a 10-year-old kid, that's what he did. He bought the first Lamborghini to come to the United States. Uh, the Craftsman tool guy came in. He said, I want one of every tool you got. And some of the tools are that long and cost 300 bucks, you know, for working on Caterpillars. He had, had one of everything. But that's the way he was, man. Just that kind of guy. How, how old do you think he was about then? Like 25, 30? 24. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens when you're young and you have a little extra disposable income, as they call yes. it. Yes. I wouldn't know what that is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Myself. <laughs> <laughs> Who else did you work with in the, in the music business that we would know? Well, when I was, you know, I got in the movie business, uh, you know, I left the motorcycle business and I was driving down the road going to see motorcycle shops. This is after I quit racing. And I'd walk in a motorcycle shop, and I was a household word. I mean, everybody at the motorcycle shop would stop and say, hey, Skip's out there, Skip's out there. And so I was very, very successful at that. But I quit that to go in the record business with Michael Nesmith, and all of a sudden, I went from driving a, comp uh, a company car down through uh, uh, Arizona, Nevada, and Utah, and Albuquerque, New Mexico, and, and the six Western states, to all of a sudden, I had Learjets and limousines. It was the craziest thing you've ever seen. I remember my first trip back east with Michael Nesmith. <clears throat> Electric Records had their corporate office on Columbus Circle, downtown New York, about the 15th floor or something. And we're in the inner executive uh, <laughs> dining room. And, and here's uh, Jack Reinstein, the vice president of finance, and Mel Posner, who was the president of Electric Records. And Jack Reinstein owned it. And uh, Mel, <clears throat> Mel Posner, I guess you guys, you know who he is. He's went on to become... Uh, president of DreamWorks now. Oh, okay. So those, those guys were all sitting around the table, and they're looking at me and Nesbeth. Now, they all knew who Nesbeth was. He was a star with the monkeys already. And, uh, uh, and uh, so they're, they're wondering what I'm doing there. And, uh, so, and they're all asking me questions. <laughs> I'm the new kid. And uh, so Jack Reinstein says to me, well, Skip, Skip, example, how many records have you bought in your lifetime? Now I was a motorcycle racer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I said, I don't know, five, six. <laughs> and and he thought I was going to say 1,000 or 100. Don't know. And I said, yeah. He says, no, I said, five or six. Five or six? Five records? Stop that. Stop that. <laughs> and and I said, well, the last record I bought was on top of Old Smokey. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but Jack Reinstein, the reason he brought, brought me in there was I was a good salesman. And I had no preconceived ideas about how the record business worked. And so, I mean, I found out very quickly in the record business, if you get your artist to, uh, to uh, uh, play in the honky-tonk in Dallas or Fort Worth, and, uh, uh, and, and then you get the radio station to, to spin the record, if you don't have stock in the marketplace, and somebody calls up and said, I tried to buy that Ian Matthews tape or album, uh, and I can't find it, they'll take it off the playlist and never play it again. So you got to get stock in the marketplace right away. By stock in the marketplace, you mean radio play and physical presence? No, you got to get, uh, you, uh, the best way to do it is get your artist in, in a local uh, 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 concert or band or, or a honky-tonk or whatever it might be. Yeah. We was country label. So you get him, you know, some, some dates for, for performing, and then you get your uh, promotion guy out promoting it at the radio station, and then you've got to get your salesman out to sell product on, uh, to, the, to the record stores. Got it. And if you don't do that all at once, uh, you're screwed. I mean, you, you're going to lose a record that fast. And so, 
Uh, and in the record business, it's 100% buyback. You can go in there and sell the stores 500 albums. They don't care. If they don't sell, you take them back. So I found out very quickly that uh, that I didn't want to you know, bring all that stuff back and use it for furniture. So I devised a way to make every album pay. I, I, I took a big map and pinpointed all the country stations all over the United States, and I found out all the country stations lied from, uh, like, uh, Carolina down to... Uh, uh, Alabama, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and that's where the country stations were in that belt. I noticed you left Florida off that list. But Florida was, yeah. Florida was there, too. Okay. And WPLO. I still I still own the radio call station. <laughs> WPLO in, uh, in Atlanta was one of the biggest record stations there, and WHN in New York, and uh, was a country station. I, whew, can you believe that? 30 years later, 40 years, I can still, still call got it. Still got it? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so... Uh, 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 and now with cocaine running free and easy, uh, you know, I'm out seeing the, uh, the stations in, in New York with my promotion guy. And, uh, we, <laughs> we, for three grams of co- cocaine, we had, uh, our records playing, uh, country records playing an FM underground station in Philadelphia. I mean, that's, that's how cocaine took over the record business. I've heard similar stories to that, but never firsthand before. Yeah. yeah. No, it was true. And and what they call it? There's a word for it. Uh, cocaine. Pay to play? Huh? <laughs> Pay to play? I forget the word. Uh, cocaine. Something. Uh, anyway, cocaine was is what got records played in those days. It wasn't just fuel; it became a commodity. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, and of course, all the promotion guys. Uh, I remember John was the head of uh, VP of promotion at Electra Records, <clears throat> and George Steele was the national sales manager for Electra Records. And, um, and, uh, I mean, I went through a, through a thing where, uh, uh, Electra Records was also, uh, the distributor for, for Pioneer Stereo stuff. So they come in my house and put in a $8,000, now I'm talking 1975 money, $8,000 quadraphonic stereo set up in my house. And, uh, and, uh, as time went on within a year, within a year, Michael Nesbitt's telling me about, we, we got this little, this little disc, we'll put a, put a disc on the thing, and you play this disc, and it'll come out on the television, you can see the people dancing and, and singing the song, and it'll be on the disc. And uh, so we're, we're making appointments, and, and Michael Nesmith was just a sticker on being on time. We'd make an appointment to go see uh, Mo Austin and Almond Aragon, the head of Capitol in Columbia, and at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, at 9.55, would be there. He'd wait until 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock, you go, dunk, 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 on the door, and in we walk, and, and he's telling about this this disc, and, and so after a few of those appointments, I'm saying, uh, well, how's that going to be a needle on that? He said, no, it'll be, a, be a, a, a laser beam. I said, Mike, you dumb son of a bitch, you can't shoot a laser beam in somebody's house, burn right through the floor, you idiot. <laughs> and I thought he was wacko. <laughs> Lo and behold, technology, uh, technology wow. gets us there. Yeah, and I said, what are you going to do with this $8,000 worth of quadraphonic stuff I got in my house? He says, well, I'll put in new equipment. I said, oh, come on, Mike. <laughs> so this is Laserdisc you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and this is still like 1978, 1980? No, this was in, uh, he, he, like I say, he was way ahead of the curve. He was, he was telling people about this stuff then. 75. So it must have been 75, yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and. Now, now, Mike and I stood to really, really hit it out of the park there. 
but I thought he was doing this uh, Buck Rogers stuff with his laser disc, and I thought that ain't gonna work. And uh, and Michael Nesmith's m- mother owned and started Liquid Paper. You know, if a yeah. lady makes a mistake, you white it out. Well, they started that company in Dallas, and Mike says he remembers emptying uh, fingernail polish bottles and going around to the, all of the uh, office buildings in Dallas selling this stuff, uh, this liquid paper. Well, his mother owned that, and she had factories in, in Belgium and France and uh, Germany on, all over, you know. And, and he was the only kid. He was the heir to that whole deal. And so he was going to be extremely rich no matter what. Yeah, but he still went out there and— did his thing. Oh, well, he, his... Yeah, he was so good at it. Uh, uh, I'd go on the concert tour with Mike uh, uh, up in the Northeast to the college concert tours. And, um, I mean, you heard about uh, uh, um, uh, the Monkees uh, uh, or uh, the Beatles. Uh, 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 George wasn't the... Uh, 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 I was the guy. Uh, what was it? I am the walrus. Yeah, I am the walrus. Okay, yeah, okay. George, uh, George is the walrus. John's not the walrus. I am the walrus. Uh, I'm sensitive to shit. I throw up before I go on stage. Well, that was Mike. He was scared to death before he'd go on stage. And I'd say, Mike, stop this, man. They love you. They love you. And I remember uh, he was at this college up there, and he was telling a story about his girlfriend. He says, uh, and uh, she was triple stupid. Well, the whole place just fell down. I mean, you know, and... But he was so good on stage, but it was, he was, he was, I mean, he'd get sick before he'd go up there. Right. Um, who was, what was the uh, racer in um, uh, Drive? He would always throw up right beforehand. Who else always threw up right before they went on stage? Uh, or or yeah. um, the character in uh, Any Given Sunday, uh, he would, uh, Jamie Lee, um, what's his name, would always throw up right before he went out to play football. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. So before we get away from this, mm-hmm. What pushed, uh, what like triggered the sobriety? Like, okay, so, you, you know, how did that all come to be? Well, then after I, rec- okay, so I see that Mike is uh, doing this hocus pocus stuff that I'm not too sure about. He's going to be rich either way with liquid paper. Well, I'll, I'll get off on that in a second, or, or, or I'll do it right now. Michael's mother died and left that whole company to the Christian Science Church and left him like, now, now he's lost that house, that big house on top of the hill on Tello Place. Now he's living on uh, Burbank Boulevard down the valley floor again. He's living in, in a little track house. And so, but when his mother dies, you know, he's going to be triple rich again. And uh, so uh, his mother died, left it all, all of the church. And he got like the best we can figure out, 40 or $50 million. Well, then he started, started uh, 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 creative arts business, uh, I forget the name of the company, and took George Steele from Elector Records with him, and uh, then he bought a Learjet. So I don't know how much money she left him, but he's able to buy a Learjet, big, beautiful house in Carmel, and run off with John Dishadick's wife, <laughs> my buddy's wife. And, and so now he's, he's, he's got all this money again and um, uh, blew it all. Blew it all. All again. He went through three fortunes that would left... All three of us rich, all three of us rich for a lifetime. And and I watched him go through two of them. So did that, is that what kind of like, how oh, far did you oh, go oh, okay. before it, would like, it really became clear that you needed, you know, like, this is not what I, what I want and yeah. I want to do something different. You know, what, what, there's obviously there had to have been something. 
Yeah, well, I looked at how much the record business was doing annually. They were doing about four four billion a year, and uh, and uh, I looked and uh, and uh, like four or five percent of the records carry the entire industry. The rest are trash can, and uh, so I looked and I said, "Well, the motorcycle business is doing a little over four billion a year, uh, and I know everybody in it by first name. I mean." Uh, uh, when I was on the road traveling, I'd go to uh, a handleman uh, in Chicago, and here's the biggest record distributor in the world. I got no idea who he is, and uh, and uh, I, I I learned it very 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 fast. But uh, anyway, when I got out of the record business, uh, 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 I got back in the motorcycle business, and uh, but I had a five hundred dollar $500 a day cocaine habit. And I'm trying to start up my business from scratch and I got no money. This is what is now Van Leeuwen Enterprises? Yes, that's what this company is today. And my 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 three sons knew I was a mess. And I thought cocaine was hip. I'd give them uh, two grams of cocaine for graduation and stuff like that. And I thought it was okay. Not knowing I was going downhill fast. And everybody I hung out with was a dirtbag. Everybody. I mean... Uh, the 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 quality of people that you that that follows cocaine is so sickening. I see a cocaine movie on television like Scarface right now. I can't watch it. it turns my stomach. I throw up. Uh, but that's how cocaine is, and it's so insidious and it sneaks up on you so bad. So these people, my my wife, my kids, saw me uh, going to kill myself. I was going to be a mess. I mean, I'd go to work in the morning with a with a, a glass full of straight scotch, Doors White Label, and uh, and uh, nothing wrong with your choice in quality. Yeah, <laughs> my, my favorite scotch. Anyway, so so uh, uh, they got me into a rehab center, and uh, when I go in this rehab center, I see uh, I think it's an overkill. You know, they want me to stop drinking too, and I thought, hey, come get me, man, out of this place. I shouldn't be here. You know, these guys are all addicts and alcoholics. So I'm I'm not either one. You know, I thought a uh, alcoholic was a guy laying in the in the corner throwing up himself, and a, uh, a dope addict was a guy with a needle hanging on his arm. And I wasn't—I was still functional, as per the black and white movie *Reefer Madness*. Yeah, that's what. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, they said, "No, no, uh, this is it. You stay there." And uh, I, and when I found out in that hospital that there was only a three percent recovery rate coming out of those rehab hospitals, three percent, and I thought. You know, and I'm so competitive from the motorcycle days. I mean, it don't take no He-Man to make make the 97%. I was going to be one of the three percenters. I was going to be the successful one. And, uh, and you know, uh, and I remember my therapist after about a week come in there, and I was running around, you know, uh, hospital and making friends with everybody. And they said, Skip, you, you're a guaranteed flop. You ain't going to make it a week out of here. And, and boy, that guy, that guy is what set my program and made me successful. And one of the guys in the hospital I really cuddled up next to was Charlie because he studied, he knew the book, he knew the table, he knew what page it was on, uh, the serenity prayer, he knew all that stuff. And so I snuggled up next to Charlie. He was the same age as I am. And when we both got out of the hospital the same day, Charlie never made it home. They found him the next morning behind the liquor store drunk. And uh, and I knew my family was not going to stand stay behind me going through two two runs at that. So uh, uh, it's been 30, 32 years now, and I haven't had an aspirin, no beer, no alcohol, no nothing, anything. 
If it affects me from the shoulders up, I don't do it. Hmm. And I got a new life, man. I'm so I'm so lucky. Some people can't get it in their head and they die. They die. And a, a big percentage of them do. And uh, you know, and the and the twelfth step is helping other people. And you know, I'll help other people. And if they don't want to help themselves, if they want to keep going out there, I say, hey, wait a minute. You go out there and kill yourself at your own chosen speed. And uh, I got no control over you. And uh, if you want to kill yourself, kill yourself, but I'm out of here. Yeah. And, you know, in al they got the three C's. I can't control it. Uh, I can't, uh, uh, three C's, I forget what they are now. But anyway. Uh, uh, 32 years, that's allowed. Yeah. <laughs> They're good. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I was so fortunate that I had strong people behind me. And all my best friends, when we go out to dinner, all my f- best friends stopped drinking too. They yeah. all stopped cocaine. And, and when they say you get out of the hospital, you got to change three things. You got to change your playground, your playmate, and your play toys. And when I got out of that hospital, everybody was new. All the dirt bags stayed away in droves. All the drug addicts stayed away. And, and I was able to mind my own business and, uh, and put full effort into my motorcycle company. Which uh, is a good segue because we definitely want to talk about like, you know, there's a whole life that you had before music, before any of this, before the sobriety started. Um, that which drove a lot of your initial passions and that has held on for the last 50 years. Yeah. And that is motorcycle racing. A legendary motorcycle racer who raced in, uh, with a legendary motorcycle racer and entertainment stunt professional was is fair yeah. fair assessment who mm-hmm. was out there with Evil Knievel back mm-hmm. in the 70s uh, who has been you've been out there uh, racing motorcycles being a part of the entertainment industry you you, you know you, it's easy to find clips of you uh, in the wild, wide world of sports just out there just you know and what was that there was a clip where and all it seemed like it was wild world of sports, but they were just talking about you. It was like the Skip Van Leeuwen <laughs> special, and you really were like out there nailing it, and like you know hitting the apex, getting out there, finding you know hit the throttle at the right time. I you I mean, I it's more so than the pictures I see. The video shows uh, a lot of your proficiencies with racing, and from the stories I've heard. Um, like, I really do want to hear that throttle pulling, uh, the, the throttle, when your throttle cable broke and you had, like, just talk to me a little bit about, like, where that started, you know, what some of your experiences were, what do you, you know, what drove that? Well, uh, I used to go, when I was a kid, I was 16, my buddy was, was 16 years old, we had no money, so we'd go to the uh, races, we'd jump over the fence and sneak in, run around, and then get a place in the grandstand, and we saw all those guys down the race, and I mean... I thought those guys were nuts. Nobody in their in their right mind would ever do something like that. I mean, I watched Jimmy Phillips and Chuck Bowsing get killed right in front of me at uh, Western Speedway. And, you know, here I'm 16, and this is just over the top. Well, what happened is me and a couple of my buddies went to, went to Catalina Island to watch the Catalina Grand Prix. They used to do it every year. I mean, tens of thousands of people swarmed Catalina. It was the biggest weekend that Catalina ever had, ever, 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 was those motorcycle weekends and so we met this young kid uh that was racing and he really did good man and we thought he wasn't as hip as we he couldn't jump as fast run as fast he couldn't swim as fast you know we thought and uh so we so we thought well if he can do it we can sure as hell do it so we went on about tiger cup motorcycles so we could race catalina next year that that's all we wanted to do was uh, to race catalina and i was not going to go any farther 
And so uh, we bought these Tiger Cubs, 200cc motorcycles, raced, raced our tail off so we'd get enough points to where, where we could race Catalina. They only took the best guys to race that. And so we qualified after the first year, and uh, <clears throat> we went, uh, uh, and they canceled it. <laughs> they canceled Catalina. So, so we had these, these uh, race bikes, and, and so, uh, you know, I'm from a Christian family, I, so I promised my family, listen, as soon as I make expert, I'll quit racing. So I made expert in the in the in the 250 in the small bike class. So I went out and bought a big bike, 650 Triumph, and I went back to amateur again. So I'm still amateur. And so, <laughs> I win. Yeah, wait. So so you know they're they're all waiting for me to quit racing. So uh, so and then I make uh, expert in the big bike uh, class right away. And uh, so I'm going to quit. <clears throat> so my friend Dick Hammer, who ended up being a national champion. I mean, Dick Hammer and I won more race, not bragging, we won more races at our time than anybody that raced, period. I mean, and and it wasn't even me racing everybody else. It was me racing Dick Hammer, period. I it's mean, a humble brag. Yeah, I, I had to beat Dick Hammer, and he didn't race anybody else. He had to beat me. And when you're in the Hall of Fame, you can brag all you want. That's yeah. a rule, I've been told. <laughs> well, well, I got elected to the Hall of Fame in 99. Dick Hammer got elected to the Hall of Fame in uh, 2000. And, um, and we both won several national championships. So does that mean when you raced each other that you won more races than him in the races that you were just racing each other? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> he, he would deny that, and justifiably so. But but he was really, really good. I mean, anybody that ever been to the racetrack, when Dick Hammer and I was racing, you had to beat Dick Hammer or me, or you wasn't going to win, period. And so you were uh, driving each other. Oh, yeah. The we competition were. was between you. It was also about these other people, but yeah. you were trying to beat each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, we grew up in high school. We played in the marching band together. Uh, we uh, played football in, in high school. We played. We had the gymnastics team. We was on the diving team. And, and we always, it, it was the competition was me and Dick, not nobody else. <laughs> A friendly rivalry. Mm -hmm. um, all in good nature, too, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then. What happened is uh, I made expert in the big bike class, and uh, I said, I quit. And Hammer says, no, 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 come on. Uh, it's a championship race out here at Acton. Uh, let's go out there, District 37 championship. So I said, okay, that's it, then I quit. So we went out to this District 37 championship, and here was, you know, like Dick Dorstein and Joe Leonard and uh, Don Werman and, and uh, Jim Goldsmith and Bud Eakins. And, I mean, these were my heroes, guys I just wanted to touch. I mean, yeah. I mean, they were they were like gods to me, you know. And so we started on the start line. I got a good scratch, uh, a good start, uh, passed four or five guys, and won the championship. <laughs> and and all those guys, Preston Petty, and some of those guys come to me up to me years later, and they said, "Van Loon, we just rubbing our hands, saying, waiting for you to make experts so we could trim you back." And <laughs> and you and you won that championship. Well, then then I was hooked. Uh, yeah, and and then we went on and raced, raced more and more races, and then uh, I I uh, we got a professional license, so so we uh, could start racing at the stadiums, you know, like Ascot and Castle Rock and all the big stadiums, and um, uh, my first year as a novice, uh, I I won all these all these scrambles. And of course, I'm a household word. I'm on the Wheaties box, I think. You made it on the Wheaties box? No, hell no. Oh, okay. I, you know, I'm j eagle for a small kid, you know, for a young kid. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think they're all talking, we're a household word. 
you know, and nobody's ever heard of us, but except the motorcycle guys. So uh, uh, I'll call all these guys up to to race their bike because they got good race bikes, and they all say, "No, no, no, kid, no, no." no. They're, you know, they're waiting for uh, Pernelli Jones or somebody to call them. And so I I said, uh, <clears throat> so me and my buddy, who uh, was a high school teacher, was just started teaching in high school. Uh, got a bike and we stripped it all down and made it all good and took it to Ascot. And uh, my first professional race, I won the heat race and then I won the trophy dash. And the main event, I had a big, about a straightaway lead and the throttle cable broke. Throttle cable. Now, anybody with a broken throttle cable, you pull in the pitch, you're done. Well, I thought, digressing a bit, <laughs> when, when we was just growing up, we, uh, you know, would uh, race around, around the town. And the cops had these uh, 1955 Fords with a flathead, you know, that only go 70 miles an hour and would blow off the cops. And, and so they'd chase them around <laughs> town. All our friends would leave the cop, the, 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 uh, uh, the clock, the uh, drive-in, and watch me and Hammer uh, go up and down Belfort Boulevard with the cops going like that, jumping around and chasing us around town. Well, they never could catch us, and the whole the whole school cheered us on. Yay! <laughs> so when I'm going down this thing, my throttle cable breaks. The only thing I can think of, well, the cops are chasing me. I'd have to pull on the throttle cable, and uh, so I pulled on the throttle cable, and and they kept catching me and catching me and catching me and catching me, and I went went across the finish line. I won it by about six inches, barely. And a famous racer, Preston Petty, uh, got second uh, to me that day, and. Uh, then everybody called me up and said, hey, Skip, you want to ride my bike? Want to ride my bike? You want to race for us? Yeah. yeah. And I was such a cocky son of a gun. I said, I, I don't want to ride that piece of crap. I don't go fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> so these were, um, well, okay, okay, a couple things. Uh, so these were Triumph 650, 650s you were racing? 650, yeah. Okay. Um, we'll get back to Triumph in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned earlier that you, you know, you came from a Christian family, mm-hmm. okay? And that you were like, as soon as I make expert, I'm going to, you know, trim it back. We'll, 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 we'll dial it back. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to step out. But then you decided that you got hooked. So obviously you decided that you wanted, there were sacrifices you were going to make, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, you know, over the years you end up having to make a lot of them to follow your passion. Yeah. I, I know that has oh to be the case. Oh boy. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, um, you know, my whole, my whole life I grew up in church and uh, Sunday school, Bible school, catechism. And we was at the Reformed Church of America. And uh, Robert Schuler, when I went to church camp in the summertime, Robert Schuler, you know, from the Crystal Cathedral, you know the Crystal Cathedral, the Hour of Power, the big crystal church in, in Santa Ana, 15 stories high, Crystal Cathedral, the most famous church in the world. Anyway, uh, he was my camp counselor, but he was just start, a start, starting out minister then. So we'll get back to that in, in, in a few minutes. And... Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, my dad, I told my dad, I'll quit racing and I'll, I'll come back to church. And uh, so I kept getting better and I kept winning races, kept winning races. And uh, uh, so my first professional expert race. Now, that first race I told you about, I was a novice uh, professional. You got to go one year novice, one year amateur, and then you make it to the expert class. Well, my first year as an expert, I got a national number. There's only 99 national numbers in the United States, and you and I got one as a first year expert. Now that don't happen at all, and um, I got number 59. And so um, uh, I talked my dad into going to these races. They were on Sunday afternoon, and at Ascot Sunday afternoon, the place is packed. I mean, just there's 12,000 people there screaming and hollering, and and uh, so I uh, got a good start. I won my heat race, and uh, and uh, 
uh, I don't know how I did in the trophy dish, don't matter. Uh, they start the main event, and here's uh, Dick Dorstein and Dick Mann and Joe Leonard, and these guys are just national national uh, winners, national champions. Leonard was number one in the United States, so was Dick Mann at different times. And uh, so, but I hadn't been beat, man. I beat all these guys all the time. And so uh, I take off and passed a few guys, and, and they passed me back. And, and I think, you know, they're passing the skip. What are they doing? And so I uh, passed them back. And, and uh, about uh, two laps from the end, we go over the jump, and my front wheel collapses when I hit, and all the bikes, hell of a crash. Ten bikes over the top. I mean, da 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 da. And I'm laying on the racetrack, and uh, I get up and do one of these dying quivers. You know, people think that's you know you're dead when that happens, but it's really a good sign because it means your motors are still working. Is there and, a video of this somewhere? Huh? Is there is there any video of this or uh, photos of this anywhere? Uh, I don't know if there is or not. Okay. Um, this is my first expert race, so I don't think they'd be fo- photographing me anyway. No worries. But anyway, so. So over, doom, doom, pow, and, and I'm on the track. My dad's up in the grandstands. He thinks I'm dead. The reason I'm dead is he, because he didn't go to church. And I, they loaded me in the ambulance unconscious. Now, you know, people say, oh, he just got his bell rung. That's that close to being dead. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I go. I mean, bell rung is a, a head concussion. Yeah, 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 head concussion. Well, you see a football player, he just got his yeah. bell rung. Well, he's damn near dead. Yeah, I, I, um, I had a fractured skull a while back from a surfing accident and when i came out uh i mean it's just a whole different world oh yeah uh, vertigo for months the whole mm-hmm. deal went yeah. unconscious underwater pulled back Ooh. and it's a you're right it's just it's that close and vertigo boys that's scary Woo-hoo. okay anyway so so they loaded me in the ambulance and they take me to the hospital and um uh, uh, my dad's there and and he is he's a mess which if my kids did to me what I did to my dad, I would shoot them on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> my poor dad is sitting there thinking, oh, man, praise the Lord. Have so not, no, he's not a holy ruler, but he was, uh, the, uh, he was sure that I got killed at the racetrack that day because he didn't go to church. And now that was my first expert race. I raced another 11 years after that. He never, ever come to a race again after that. His last race, if they come on television, he'd turn them off. Did you, oh man! And, uh, Can you blame them though? Oh no! Oh no. no! Well, when my kids, when I got old enough to had kids, I didn't buy my kids motorcycles to race. Uh, I bought them trials bikes so they wouldn't go out racing. Yeah, give them some toys when yeah. they're young, and then they yeah. will probably find something else mm-hmm. to keep them more interested. Well, and see, when I raced, also, uh, it's all the father and son teams got ki- the son got killed. Bobby Skibstead, Ronnie Emig, Todd Sloan. You know, their dads took them all the races, and the kids got killed. Rockwood, there's four of them. And uh, so I, I promised myself I was never going to take – and I'm not bum-kicking the sport, man. It was a great sport, great life. I loved it. And uh, uh, But it's not like basketball or football. You know, you don't break an arm. You get maimed or killed. And, uh, I mean, I uh, – and what when I finally quit, the reason I quit is because I didn't want to get wheelchaired. I've been to Rancho Los Amigos Rehab Center in Downey so many times to see so many of my friends, uh, El Gunner, Neil Keen, and Todd Sloan, and, and these guys, they're wheelchaired for life. And, uh, uh, I mean, I knew that was that would be the real test of a person's mud to get in that, to be wheelchaired. And, I, and, uh, and I'd, I'd walk in there. The doctors called me by name. Hey, Skip, how you doing? Because I see 
so many guys would get wheelchaired and I, and, and I, boy, I didn't want that. And so, um, uh, uh, those guys, uh, uh, the rehab people, they leave every guy that leaves that hospital leaves with this hope. They tell them there's been some research done in Finland or Poland or Sweden, and they're just about to get the spine fused together within two, two years. They'll get this thing done. You know, because they fit, they think if these guys get through the first two years, he'll be okay. But they tell them all that same story. Oh, it was sad to hear that. Um, I'm sure you've been asked a million times what it was like to win your first race, first big race. So I'm not going to ask that. But what was what was the biggest race to you personally that you maybe went into it thinking I don't know if I'm going to win this one, and and then it turns out that you did. What was like the biggest? What was the biggest triumph for you? Uh, <clears throat> biggest triumph was. Uh, uh, Agagenian was a promoter. Agagenian was was the most wonderful guy. I he, I became friends with him and his family and everybody else. All all three of his sons. But Agagenian was a solid Christian guy too. And uh, uh, so he had this race in 1967 at uh, Ascot, and uh, he it was on Wide World of Sports. I mean, uh, now in 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 the late 60s. Every Sunday, everybody went home to church as fast as they could to watch Wide World of Sports. It come on at one o'clock. Yeah, that was the deal. Well, I'm now I'm on this in this race, Wide World of Sports, and uh, now who's who is is running January. So who's who in motorcycle racing is there? The best guys in the world are all sitting in a certain line, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, it's a, a hundred lap race, and um, and I won that. And uh, Jane, Jane Mansfield was a trophy queen that that day. Jane Mansfield, I show you the picture. Yes, there. you did. Yeah. And Clint Walker was uh, was on the other side, and uh, uh, you, you sold them their bikes, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I sold Jane Jane Mansfield a scooter, and uh, and give her riding lessons. I might add. Anyway, so um, uh, uh, I mean, I I pulled in, I pulled up to the pits, and I see there's fifteen thousand people jumping up and down, screaming and hollering. And it's for me. It's for me. I mean, tears just started rolling down my cheeks like that. I mean, it you was, went big time. The chills. I mean, it was over the top. And and that same day was Evil Knievel's first jump. Oh. He jumped, uh, I think, thirteen uh, buses or cars. Thirteen buses, and and the gap on that. Now, when Knievel jumped, he jumped motorcycles with a suspension of about two inches. Front and back, you know. Uh, you know, guys that jump those cars twice as far and do full flip in between now, but but they got uh, 12, 30, 13 inches of travel, and they got bikes that'll handle it and do it. But uh, Knievel uh, uh, jumped that thing in thirteen cars, and uh, I mean, it was it was just breathtaking, breathtaking. And Knievel and I became really good friends after that. From that day, yeah, from that day. Well, we was friends before, but when, when I seen him make that jump, I thought. Boy, that is something that got my attention, and uh, and Agajanian was such a good, honest, wonderful, fair person. I can't say enough about Agajanian. Agajanian is what established racing in the United States. Uh, when, whenever you traveled around the United States to uh, Daytona or uh, Indy or uh, uh, Washington Glen or any place you went, uh, they didn't consider you a Joe, one of the real guys, unless you had won at Ascot. Ascot was a yardstick for the whole United States. And uh, 
uh, when, uh, and so Agajanian had Wild World of Sports out there, and they paid $15,000. And I won the main event, and he gave us 40% of the gate. 40% of the gate. And no other promoter would do that. They give you a $10,000 purchase, split it. If he got 50,000 people there, it don't matter. Agajanian gave you 40% of the gate. I got 40% of the, uh, uh, of the TV money, too. I got the largest dirt track payoff in history to that day. I made 1750 bucks, which was, you know, 67 Come on, you buy a new yeah. pickup truck for that. Yeah. And, um, and then Keneville and I— Not bad for a day's work. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then you got, you know, 500 from the helmet company and 500 from the motorcycle company, so you got some, uh, you know, some good residuals on it. And, um, and the next biggest race that I ever won that I really am proud of is uh, at the uh, Houston Astrodome. They had a national championship there, and uh, there was 47,000 people there. Must have been loud in the dome. Oh, yeah. And I remember Michael Nesbitt saying to me, Skip, I never played in front of 40,000 people ever. And then he promptly puked all over the floor. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and then, and, and anyway, so I, I won that, and, and that was a big deal. And, um, but I'd say one of the races I'm really happiest about winning is when I won the national championship at Castle Rock, Washington. Uh, and here's the best guys in the country. Everybody's there. And, um, and uh, I'm the fastest guy. I'm sp- supposed to win it. And um, uh, so we take off, and, and I got a decent lead, and uh, I started getting tired. I did daydream. Boy, that's, that's a kiss to death, too, when you're racing. Uh, so I, uh, and I'm going and going, and, and uh, pretty soon along comes Mert Lawbaum and passes me. And uh, I'm going and racing, racing, I'm getting tired, tired. Along comes Bart Markle, passes me. Both these guys are, are number one national guys. And, uh, and I'm running third now, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, I wish this race was over. I'd love to get third place. And, um, but I remember my tuner was, a, was a, a, a skinny guy and really a good tuner. And he says, Skip, I'd really like to win a national championship so I can be like Danny Macias or Walt Axtell or C.R. Axtell and, you know, the big tuners down here. And so I stick out my chest like those guys do. And I thought, I thought son of a bitch, man. I could win this for a curry. And I just, boy, put my head down to it and went, boom, 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 slide with pow, tow, pow. And I caught it to Bart Markle and uh, passed Bart Markle. And now the race is coming in. And there's about three or four laps. Bert, and Mert and Mert Lovell's got a good, and he's a good, Mert Lovell's a good friend of mine who ended up national number one this year. But this is a national championship now. And so I work and work and work and For work. For those who can't see, Skip is actually sliding, dodging, bunk, <laughs> yeah. ducking and weaving in his chair while it's telling this story. <laughs> and I am doing all that on the bike, too. And I'm thinking, boy, and I'm just working and working and finding. And finally, I get up to Mert Lawwell. And the next to the last lap, I catch him on the big corner. And I go high and squirt off and come down below him. And we're, we're both going sideways now. He knows I'm coming. He should have let me through. He knew I was coming. I had to drive on him, and uh, and his own fault. He stuck his foot out in front of me with a with a steel shoe, ripped his steel shoe off, and pew, and uh, so so he was such an idiot. I shouldn't say that. Good friend of mine, uh, but he but he pulled in the pits and quit. And and uh, he had a chance to be national number one. National number one. They take so many points for all all the national championships in the United States. End the year, add them up, and that guy gets the number one plate. Only that plate changes each year, and. Uh, Mert Lowell says to this day, that was the maddest I've ever been in anybody in my entire life. But I, 
I won that race, not for me, not for anybody else, just for my tuner. Yeah. Because I go. could have taken third place just as easy. So um, you were racing Triumph 650s. Mm -hmm. um, what, uh, what got you there? And I guess, yeah, let's start with there. What got you to race the, the Triumph bikes? I mean, you've been racing Triumph for a long time. <laughs> it's going to sound funny, but uh, I started racing Triumph, and I bought my first Triumph. Uh, have you guys ever seen this movie, The Wild One? The Wild One with most famous movie of all time with uh, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando rode a Triumph. And that was it? <laughs> yeah. It's oh. I was a 16-year-old kid. I had to have a Triumph be like Marlon Brando. And it holds for the next, for the rest well, of? as I started getting good, you know, the trick is, um, um, is to get a sponsorship. You know, young, young guys that come up to me and say, Skip, how do you get sponsored by Triumph? And I said, well, you got to go out and win every race out in the desert, every every motocross race, every race, and uh, do that for about two years, and maybe maybe they'll give you a, a ride for one of the races. Well, you know, I did that for five years and won all over the place, and then then Triumph, uh, when I pulled one of the throttle cables, what got their attention. <laughs> <laughs> and and they sponsored me from that day on. And so Here's being, a winner. Well, being sponsored by Triumph was, was the biggest deal of all because back then there was Triumph, the only bikes they raced was Triumph, Norton, Hardy Davidson, and BSAs. And, um, you know, Yamahas and Hondas hadn't come in yet into the racing scene. Were there ever any sponsors that came to you and you said, I, I don't want to be sponsored by you. This is too weird. This is too outside the fold. Not too weird. It was just that, uh, you know, I said, uh, yeah, a lot of, you know, you know, by then you get offers from all over the place, but I said, no, I'm, I'm staying with Triumph. They take care of me, and I'm I'm thrilled to death to be here. I'm just happy to have the Triumph ride. Loyalty. That's that, I think yeah, that has probably gone a long way over the last thirty years for you. Yeah, I you know, the, you know, I could have jumped ship and got more money with Harley Davidson, and and uh, then when Yamaha come in and got more money from them. But uh, <clears throat> you know the old saying, an ounce of loyalty is worth a pound of cleverness. Truest thing in the world. I mean, if if you're loyal. And, and stick with them, they'll remember that when you're down. Pays off long term. It sure does. Yeah, and, uh, I'm inclined to believe it. Yeah. And uh, uh, they treated me good, and I, and I treated, you know, I stayed with them the whole time. And then um, you mentioned Knievel. Yeah, we were bit. just about to bring we that back We want to talk around. about Knievel. Yeah, huh? let's do it. We want to talk about Knievel. What was your relationship like? And Oh, uh, well, me and Knievel were, be were best friends. They, you know, they just did the, uh, for a &E, the Knievel series, well, they filmed that here. Well, Kenevil and I became uh, really close friends. Uh, he used to pull his motorhome up across the street, cross the street here all the time, and he hung out, he hung out here. And uh, so, uh, 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 me and Kenevil, uh, we—I go on three, four hours about the guy, but but he was just whack. He was just nuts. The most egotistical son of a bitch you've ever seen or known before in your entire life. He had an e e ego bigger than Michael Nesbitt, uh, Kenny Rogers, and uh, uh, Lucille Ball all in one. I mean, his it, it'd take three That's dump trucks. That's a lot trucks. of imagery. <laughs> it took three dump trucks to hold his ego around. He, he'd walk in a restaurant and walk up to Maitre D' and say, Paige Knievel, would you? And come sit back to the table. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was just that way. He had to, he had to let everybody know that he was there. Oy. And uh, Was he loyal? Uh, Would you? To, to, to his friends, to a certain extent. I mean, uh, he was always loyal and honest and s sincere and true to me. 
when when they shot that film on Knievel here, they wanted me to come up with a bunch of dirt about Knievel. He was a hell's angel. He was this. He was that. And 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 there a lot of kinky things he did. Uh, I, uh, I do remember a quote from you saying that you know in front of the camera sometimes you would tell kids. You know, go home, stay in school, eat your vitamins, and five minutes later there would be 25 girls in a hot tub yeah. and total debauchery and uh, all well, the things that come with fame and yes. money and power. And, and he had, and he was a ladies' man. He had girls swooning all over him. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, uh, Evil and I would do these stunt shows around the country. Uh, and uh, Evil, by this time now, he, he's able to get the biggest Stunt guys in the history. I mean, I've any, any, and so, uh, uh, no, I, I wasn't a big stunt guy, but he had, he had guys like Rod Pack, the guy that jumped, he was on the cover of Times Magazine, jumped out of an airplane just with, by himself, mm-hmm. and his friend dove down and handed him a parachute and he put it on, which was, you know, now I'm telling you back in the 70s, that was a big deal. <laughs> big deal right now. It'd yeah. be, it's a big deal today, I was about to say. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank gravity you. still exists. <laughs> thank you, still there. Did gravity and, exist in 1970s? Uh, I'm pretty sure it did. did. That yeah. qualifies it as a yeah. big deal. Yeah. And so Knievel, <laughs> there's one show we're doing at Ascot. Knievel's got, we got a telephone pole there. We dig it and put it you know, 100 feet high. And, but we dig a four-foot thing there, a hole, and fill it full of sponge, about uh, four feet of sponge, and put a little dirt on top of it. Rod Pack would get on top of that telephone pole, and it go like this, a one and a half flip, and the whole grandstand sees you're going to hit smack on the dirt. Kill him. He's dead. Yeah. And he hit, boom, and bounce back up. <laughs> and A collective, and, yeah. from the audience. Yeah. Well, and then and then we did, uh, 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 and all these stunts start going bad, you know. Knievel never practiced nothing. He, he just dreamed them up. And so he took all these stacks of particle plywood, a whole sheet of four by eight plywood, and he set them in this steel uh, uh, pan and soaked them in gasoline all day. Well, you know the bottom ones never got gasoline very much, and uh, so you guys remember Swede Savage, pretty good motorcycle racer, uh, became a champion car racer, got killed at Indy. Anyway, Swede Savage was doing them for it with us too. So, <laughs> so Swede Savage was was a guy that was going to going to uh, ride through the wall of fire, and. So he said, after they're setting gasoline all day, soaking in gasoline, he puts them on these, uh, on these uh, 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 boards, setting straight up. And Swede goes all around, around the racetrack and goes, and about 110 mile an hour, hit that first one. Shaboom, and fires and sparks all over the place. Boom, it's the next one, fires and sparks. Boom, the third one, boom. And, then, and pretty soon he hits the fourth or fifth one. Boom, oh, barely made through it. Boom. And pretty soon he hits the end one and it bounces back. I mean, he don't go through it. I mean, just knock the crap out of him. So <laughs> this is Knievel stuff. So the next the next stunt show, we said, Knievel, that's that's just fine, but you can do the wall of fire this time yourself. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> so here's the deal. He had this uh, uh, little midget guy, and uh, now this midget guy, you know, he had uh, a he, little person, I believe, is the correct uh, vernacular. Yeah, okay. For this. Okay. Maybe I shouldn't say all that. I'll go say it anyway. <laughs> His legs were about that long, <laughs> and his arms were about that long, and his torso was like this, was this long. That was one and foot, one this- foot, and three feet for the, those of you playing the home game. He's doing it with his hands here. <laughs> okay. Now, he had a head that was like this. Two feet? Yeah. <laughs> by, uh, it was like 18 inches. Swedish angel. There was no helmet that would even fit on him. He had the biggest head and his longest torso, and he, and he, could, he couldn't run because his legs would go like that. And so uh, we, had this, uh, we had this little Taco 22 motorcycle and had wheels about that big. 
you know, a little mini bike. Yeah. And so we had this uh, uh, plywood board or particle board painted uh, red with lines in it like it looked like a brick wall. And uh, people in the grandstand look like a brick wall. And uh, so he gets on this Taco 44, but he couldn't ride a motorcycle very well anyway. You know, he's, uh, and, uh, and then again, it's a Knievel thing, no practice. And uh, so he, he gets on his Taco 44, and the wheels are that big around, and he's sitting in these dirt clods that are that big. So he's going wobble, 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 bouncing off the dirt clods and wobble, 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 and he goes pow, and hits that brick wall and bounces back. I mean, don't even, I mean, don't even, don't even phase it. And so and then the trick is, and then I drive by my pickup truck, and Sweet Savage, Eddie Moeller, these guys are back in my truck, and we got a uh, we got a, a dummy back there made up like the midget. So they reached out and grabbed the uh, midget, and they're supposed to throw him in the back of the truck and rough him up. Well, they throw him in the back of the truck and rough him up, and, and he's, the midget's just screaming like a son of a guy, just making a lot of noise. They're like, wow, that guy's really a showman. <laughs> and so they, I drive alongside the jumping ascot, and they fling the jump, the, uh, the, uh, the dummy, with the ragged legs and stuff, fling him over the jump, and everybody goes, oh, wow, they thought they threw the midget out. Well, the midget's in the back of the truck still screaming like a lunatic. <laughs> so we pull up a Knievel's motorhome, and he's got the leather jacket on, and undo the jacket, his collarbone's broken, the blood's running down the thing. <laughs> and Knievel, tr- typical Knievel, uh, Butch was his name. Butch, you don't get back on that bike, I ain't going to pay you a dime, man. Oh. <laughs> he was gold. Ruthless. <laughs> Ruthless. <laughs> Now, is it a good time to talk about one of our recurring themes, safety, at this point? Sure, that seems like a great segue. <laughs> Let's see how many things we can run into at high speed <laughs> and then talk about safety. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, obviously, um, everybody's making sacrifices. Um, you know, you get a whole bunch of a whole bunch of these guys in a testosterone in a you get a whole bunch of these guys in a testosterone-driven yeah, industry or passion, okay? Mm-hmm. And they want to go out and just like anybody else, like anybody that, you know, either blends something they— re- anybody that's found what they really, really like to do and made it a way to make money off of it. You know, you're passionate about it. You're yeah. willing to make sacrifices. So a lot of these drivers uh, are out there— and that's not just motorcycle drivers, just talking about across the board now, mm-hmm. are out there making sacrifices and they're willing to either bend the rules or figure out ways that they can justify, you know, what they're doing regardless of the danger that's involved and the safety aspects. My question is, is it a broad range out there or are there some hard and fast rules of how to take care of yourself or your teammates uh, when they're out there risking their lives? Well, uh, it's come a, come a long way since I um, I stopped racing. Those new motocross racers are pure pure athletes. Those guys are, are really are really on their game. But uh, you know, as you see some of that stuff happen, uh, you know it's never going to happen to you. The other guy's always going to be the one that gets hurt, and uh, never you. And uh, uh, one time I was at the Pacific Coast Championship, and, uh, and this is a funny story, but I'll tell it real quick. Uh, I'm in, in, down there working on my bike, and all of a sudden, Sammy goes, wow, slams me on the ground, man, with a double fist on the back and down on the ground. And, going, and I think somebody wants to fight me, and so uh, I'm going like this, and, and here's this guy, Matt McKee. And uh, 
is a real handsome guy. His brother did Time Tunnel movie on television, and um, and he was on on that 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 series. But he was a decent bicycle, motorcycle racer. Well, unbeknown to me, uh, uh, about a year before that, we was at the Pacific North Pacific Championship uh, Northwest Championship in Boise Boise Idaho, and uh, I was leading them leading the main event. I should have won it, and I'm I'm lapping this guy Matt. And his bike blows up on the straightaway right in front of me. He goes, and it's fish telling like that. And now I'm running, you're running 100 miles an hour, and I can't change direction too much. And so I got to try and judge which way I'm going to pass him on. And that bike goes like this, and, and then it goes back like that. And I think, why well, get by that way? And he swung back. And, you know, now I got my hands on the handlebar really hard, and I drove my hand right into his back. And uh, now at 100 miles an hour, I'm in over the top, destroyed my bike. Uh, uh, I didn't win the championship. Uh, we both go to the hospital, uh, and uh, I don't know how bad he's hurt. <clears throat> I get in the airplane and fly home, and uh, I hear, you know, a week later that it ruptured his plane, punched his lung, punched his heart, and he was a mess and spent nine months in the hospital. But I don't know that. I, I know he... I find out later how bad it was. And uh, so... He slams me down to the ground like this. This is a guy that slams me down at, the, at at Portland now, and I think he wants to fight me. And I get up and he says, "How you, Skip? How you doing, Matt? 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 You know, uh, you know, you almost killed me. You killed me. Uh, uh, but I'm tough. I'm a man's man. I'm a. Uh, uh, I can do anything. I'm a man's man. Come on, how you doing? And uh, he said, "Here, here's a." And he had a real pretty Indian girl with her. He says, "Here, this girl's got this bracelet." Um, and I want you to wear it, man. It's going to make you go fast or get hurt bad, hurt really bad, hurt bad, really hurt bad. He keeps emphasizing how bad it's going to, I'm going to get hurt. And, I, and, uh, and you know, motorcycle racers are, are always superstitious. You can't eat peanuts in the pit, no green on the motorcycle. Cars are the same way, no green on the car. And, uh, so these are the hard and fast rules I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, the hard, fast rule. No peanuts, no, uh, no, uh, no green. So he says... Here, where this Indian bracelet is going to make you go fast, go fast, really fast, or hurt bad, hurt bad, hurt. And he keeps pretty soon. I see he emphasizes that he wants me to get hurt bad, and so I said, "Well, give me that bracelet. I'll wear it." And um, you know, I don't believe in that stuff anyway. And uh, boy, sure as hell, the main event. Shh. About the third lap, crash in the first corner. Pow, pow. The bike stacked, uh, stacked up, and uh, and I'm I'm knocked silly, but I got enough sense to know that I got my back to the straightaway where the, where the bikes are coming from. And so uh, I, I, I'm on my hands and knees in the racetrack, and I, and I think I better get my hands up. And I swung around and got my hands up and caught a motorcycle wide open at the end of the straightaway in the chest, wide open. Mm. And came my chest in, uh, can't breathe, and I think I'm going to die. Now, this is the end of my career. I'm thinking about quitting anyway. And I think, damn it, I could have quit. <laughs> could have quit. Now I'm going to die here at this chicken shit racetrack. And, uh, and uh, uh, right here, it's not going to, uh, I'm going to die. And so uh, uh, they get my leathers off. They load me in the ambulance. And uh, they're taking me to the uh, uh, hospital. And as the ambulance is going through the uh, gate, people are saying, stop, stop, stop the ambulance. And so the ambulance stops and the door opens. And in the back jumps Matt and this Indian chick. 
<laughs> I thought, I thought, I thought they're, they're going to whack is, me on the way to the hospital. This is your fault. I'm here. Your fault. Haven't you helped my day enough, sir? Yeah. 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 So, he so voodooed said, you. He gave said, you that voodoo yeah. bracelet, and he, he knew what he was doing. I looked down there. Still that bracelet on. Did they? Stop! Stop! Get me out of here! Get me out of here! Get me out of here! So they got me out of here and drove me to the hospital in the car. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> that's <clears throat> some of the safety. Uh, uh, safety, but I. I People didn't talk safety. Racers didn't. Yeah. You know, that that wasn't part of the consciousness. There there was um, a discussion that you and I had prior about the old Formula One conversation, uh, about the old Formula One cars mm -hmm. and how that the front axle used to be, uh, they shifted the position of the driver around so that the front axle was not under their legs, whereas before it yeah. was. So if anything happened with the axle... Yeah, drivers would get wheelchaired, as you said. Well, well, that's what happened in in the Indy cars too. You know, all those guys. You know, at 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 first, you know, the motors were in the front when they run sprint cars and big engine in the front. The guy sat behind the engine and uh, uh, over the back axle. Well, you know, uh, Phil Hill when he came in, he came in with that front engine English car, uh, European car, and uh, he was the fastest guy there. I think he won it, and uh, he may have won it a couple times. Well, then everybody started doing front-engine cars at, at um, uh, I mean, rear-engine cars at Indy. And, and, then, and then they kept moving, you know, to get the power-to-weight ratio right, they kept moving the guy's body farther forward. And pretty soon, the guy's sitting in the car, and his legs are over the axle. And when that guy, you know, when that guy spun, uh, spun on the wall, hit the wall, the first thing to go is to just break all the guy's legs. And... Uh, that's why they had so many horrible accidents at uh, Indy. And Swede Savage, my buddy, was one who got killed in that, that type of thing. And so then they passed the rule to make the, the guy's legs, his, his body, his legs and his whole body has to be behind the front axle. In your business and industry, how does that, how do you balance the needs of the manufacturers versus the needs of the race promoters and even the teams? Because the teams are the ones that are actually doing the adjustments, moving that seat further and further forward. Mm -hmm. So how is that safety perspective balanced in your industry? Uh, <clears throat> I think that um, um, on motorcycles... <laughs> They pretty much let, uh, let the guys run. Yeah, I mean you you can't change the body body part too much. But uh, <clears throat> I've been to racetracks before where where um, you know we watched that movie the other night where where the guy says too dangerous, let's not race. I was at Daytona International Speedway one time, and they started that race in a blinding rainstorm, and and I was I was that guy. I was walking, walking around. You guys, we can't race in this rain. Come on, stop. Let's, you know, use some common sense. And uh, uh, so they did the same thing. Just like in Rush. Yeah. And, and they started that baby in a rainstorm. Now, you know, there's 100, 112 motorcycles in this thing lined up. And the first two or three guys going down the back straightaway could see. The rest of people, I'm telling you, uh, uh, Lewis, it was like they put a, a, a plastic bag over your head. You're uh, so just getting see, the mist kicked up from the guys. Yeah, ahead of yeah, them. it was just solid mist, solid fog. And, I mean, you couldn't see the front wheel. I mean, and and the only thing you could do is is just look look at the cement and try and go as straight as you can. Now you don't know if people's down up there, if there's a crash or what's going on. I mean, it was the scariest thing I've ever seen. You know, run 135 miles an hour into a with a bag over your head. 
that you know gets your attention. Do you find that kind of thing was pushed by uh, the track owners or the TV interests or yes to everybody who had you know that has money involved in this kind of thing? Uh, or was or was it a manly? I don't care what the situation is. I don't care if there's three feet of snow out there. Let's get out there and race, kind of a thing. I think it was a little bit of that, but also um, um, AMA. You know, had all the money invested and had all the people there and the hundred thousand people in the grandstand. I I think it was uh, it was a uh, uh, a thing of money and uh, convenience. The balance between sports and entertainment. Yeah, exactly, and. Uh, uh, Boy, I mean, that race should not have started. Do you think that there are other places where you see that, where safety is marginalized? Just in general, not necessarily in auto racing, but do you have any other, like, have you been able to compare what you do to any other industry? I think that, uh, uh, you know, racing is a young man's sport. And, uh, you know, in motorcycle racing and car racing, you know, you don't break a leg or an arm. You get maimed or killed. And, and you know, when a guy's 30 years old in motorcycle racing, it's all over. You're done. I mean, um, uh, and I know that when, by the time I got to be 30 years old, I was thinking, wow, man, this this really ain't necessary. I could go to the Rams game tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, uh <clears throat> You know, you you look at Knievel and uh, all the stuff he did. He never talked safety ever, 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 ever. And uh, what ended up happening? How did I mean? He 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 made it. He survived successfully. Got yeah. out of the business, or at least got out of the dangerous aspect of uh, being out there. Um, you know, and, and and made it out. How did he? How did he manage to walk that line for so long? Boy, it was just a whole lot of luck. At the end, and skill. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. He, Mm. <laughs> Look at that face. He, or not. I, I, know, I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, well Knievel, bless his heart, what he wanted to be is he wanted to be a motorcycle racer. And the year he came up to race, that was the year uh, all the Hondas and Yamahas were coming in, and they all made 250cc motorcycles. And and they wanted to get them on the racetrack. So they made a rule then that the novices, you know, the beginners, uh, would, would start on 250cc motorcycles. Well, you know, Knievel was six foot one and, you know, uh, 200 pounds, and, and that bike wouldn't pull him, so he had no choice. That was when he made his decision to start jumping, you know, to uh, because he couldn't he couldn't race. It, the bikes just wouldn't pull him around. This was the question I was going to ask, was you've worked in, in both these worlds. You worked in the, in the racing AMA world, but then also in this sort of over-the-top spectator part of it. Was there any, uh, uh, was there any ever resentment from racing purists that, you know, this was becoming a spectacle jumping through a fired hoop and, and, you know, 13 buses and all the rest of it. Was there ever any, um, I, I can only think it's analogous to like, if you're a big fan of baseball and then you're a fan of the home run derby, you know, what Knievel was doing was essentially having a home run derby all the time. He took one element of a sport and, and, you know, made it into an empire yeah. What yeah. was there ever any kind of resentment from the purists or professional jealousy sort of thing? Yeah, because there was also a ton of money to be had. So well, he was, was making it. Well, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I'd always kid him when would go out places. I'd say, Cable, they had to be me asking me for my autograph, not you for yours. What's this about? <laughs> but but you know, I mean, by then he became so big, so powerful. One time we 
jumped in his motorhome. We stopped by Star Sporting Goods on uh, on uh, Highland and uh, Hollywood Boulevard. We come out of that sporting goods store. There was 500 kids around his motorhome. I mean, he was such a draw, so fast you couldn't believe it. Did his motorhome actually have his name on oh, the yeah. side? Oh, okay, red, there. <laughs> red, red, white, and blue flag. I mean, he, everybody, when he went down the road, everybody had to know he was there. Uh, would drive up his motorhome to uh, Restaurant Row, uh, 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 Benny Hanna's on uh, La Cienega, and uh, if a guy give the guy a hundred bucks, park, here, uh, park it in the back. I don't want to see nobody around it. And he'd walk up to Maitre D and say, "Here's a hundred bucks. I want my table." He'd walk up to get, waiter to come there and say, uh, "Buy everybody in the kitchen a round of drinks," and then come back in there and say, "Thank you, Keenan." Well, they didn't buy him a drink. Uh, to say, "Thank you, Keenan." Buy him another round of drinks, and 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 he had a wad of money that big. And I said, Kenny, well, you can't spend money that fast and not keep receipts, man. It ain't going to work. You, uh, you, you got, you got to say where it's going. Ah, oh, shut up, Skip. What the hell you know about making money? Look, you're, you're a broken down old motorcycle racer. You don't know shit. And uh, you know, but this is just the way you talk. You know, you, you had a, yeah, uh, you got to keep uh, up with there the There was boys. love there still. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was my pal. It, it was like that movie when they wanted me to say dirt on him. I said, stop. He's my friend. I'm not going to say dirt about him because you don't look at the best friends you've ever had and find a bunch of chicken shit things about him you don't like. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, Brian has probably thought that about me plenty of times. <laughs> and I'm writing them down to sell them in my book. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but he, he was clearly successful at promoting himself. I saw a list where he, was, he is the third most well-known athlete in American history. Babe Ruth, Muhammad Ali, and, and, and Neil Knievel is third. That, that's incredible for what is somewhat a marginalized sport. I mean, it wasn't a football star. It wasn't a baseball star. It was, you know, it's incredible the level that he got to. Everybody knew who this guy was. So there must have been some resentment. Yeah. Spill it. Tell us. Well, well, <laughs> no, no. Uh, he made it so fast, so big. I, you know, everybody was just awestruck. I mean, I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, would go out to Ernie's on, uh, on Lincolnshire Boulevard and, and, you know, for lunch, we'd both eat lunch fast. We could try to get out the door and make the other guy pay. Well, uh, uh, I don't see him for about six months, and um, so he, he calls me up and he says, uh, "Oh, oh, so so we're up at Sheridan Universal one night uh, having dinner, and uh, uh, here's Telly Savalas and people like that, uh, movie stars hanging out there. Nobody's paying attention to any of them. They're lined up out the door, down the thing, and down the hall for Knievel's autograph. I mean, he was the biggest draw of of anybody anywhere." Uh, I mean, it was, uh, 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 I mean, uh, I started to tell you that story when I went to Florida. He says, Skip, I'll send uh, my Learjet to pick you up. I think he's full of crap. So uh, I, I don't know. I don't even know why I went to Burbank Airport. Sure as hell, there comes a black, a black uh, Learjet. Picks me up and we fly to, uh, fly to Florida. And uh, uh, I showed you the picture of my wall. He's got this big, beautiful yacht, 85 feet long, teak wood and everything else. And so... Um, I go in there, and above my uh, room, my station room, he's got Skip Van Leeuwen painted on there for like I'm going to live there. And uh, and so uh, we get up the next morning, and there's chairs down there, and these people are waiting, these businessmen, and paying $5,000. Now, this is 75 money, mind you. $5,000 for a half hour to talk to them to pinch their, pitch their trinket or beads or whatever they wanted to pitch. And uh, uh, so he listened to them for about... Uh, for about until about noon, he said, "Tell the rest of them come back tomorrow, and uh, we're gonna go play golf." So we go to Bonaventure Golf Course with uh, 
the golfer, uh, the Willie Moscone of golf courses. They won't even let him play on most golf courses. Uh, I'll say his name in a minute. Don't matter. These millionaires are standing in line to play golf with him. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. And, uh, and, and, and uh, Evil and da-da-da just would fleece these guys. I watched the guy pay, pay Evil off 17500 at the clubhouse. So we go back to, the, back to his place, and these girls are just running around half-naked, uh, down below, just, I mean, he had his pick of 25 of them. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. And so then he says to me, hey, Skip, I'm going to buy me a new yacht, on, yacht, uh, yacht uh, so I can take you out to dinner tomorrow night. Now, I don't think he owns the one we got. So he shows me a check from Ideal Toys that he just got for $360,000. Now, I don't know if there's a month or two months or whatever, whatever time before, but three hundred sixty grand. Woof. In and, 75 money. Yeah, 75 money. And so... Uh, so uh, he's on this yacht. So we, uh, he said, okay, we, when we go to look at the yacht, kick, kick the floorboards a little bit and tell him you don't like it and tell him uh, the picture looks, looks like hell. And now his language is, is awful. Uh, and I don't want to say it here, but uh, so anyway, so he would say, uh, uh, so I did all that. And so then they, they quibble a little bit over the price and they settle on $625,000. And so Kenny um, writes him a check and he says, okay, now get the fuck off my boat. Huh. That caustic and that rude. And you know what it was? It was David Jones, that Wall Street wizard, whose boat he bought. And, uh, and so uh, uh, he said, no, no, no. I want to make sure the check clears. Come back Monday. And Kenny was, says, you see that Stutz Bearcat out there? Here's the keys. And he's got a five-carat diamond in the key ring. He said, Here, here's the keys. Hold it till the check clears. <laughs> so he calls us. Calls his captain up and turns the ship around and me and him are pushing this big thing and putting four foot waves where there's diaconder lawns down there. And he's tugging on us. He says, You guys are going to jail. You're going to jail. Anyway, Knievel. <laughs> yeah, did he just, did, I, did yeah. he, he hijacked this yacht? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> yeah, to Dan. No, he, he, he bought it for $625,000. Yeah, but he bought it, but it wasn't actually if they, it wasn't actually released to him when he decided that he wanted to leave with it. Oh, yeah, he left with it. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah, yeah, he, he took it. That was his. Anyway, so we talked about uh, one of your first bikes being a Triumph 650, and uh, Triumph Tiger Cub is one of your first racing bikes. What bikes have been totally sacred to you over the years? What do you have now in your your personal collection? If you've got uh, all the uh, all the racers, always seem to have a couple of of their favorite bikes that they've gotten over the years. Yeah, my favorite bike would um, well, the best handling, best running Triumph was a 1962 uh, 62 Bonneville. Um, and then in 63, they, they changed from the uh, transmission engine, engine separate to a unit construction like they are now on one piece. And the 63 was just awful, just awful. Ill handling, wrong rake and trail. Uh, but then the, uh, they worked on them in 64, 65. They got better. 65 was a good one. Best year of all was 1968 Triumph uh, uh, TT Special. Best one. That's the one I got in the lobby. All right, all yeah. right. I'll have to um, I'll have to run run that by my uncle. He uh, he's a uh, we've never talked about this before, but he uh, I don't know why not, but he uh, basically does uh, custom modifications for bikes out of Connecticut. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll have to be asking him about these bikes and, and get this information verified. Yeah. But you know, I, I trust the source. I went back when I was ne- uh, like 19 years old. They took the three best racers off the West Coast and raced against the three best racers on the East Coast uh, in sporting events. And uh, we stayed in Greenwich, Connecticut, and we raced up in uh, Grafton, Vermont. 
Well, those guys came down here to California, and we just slacked them. One of your race. We went up there, and this guy, Don Gore, just <laughs> slacked us the same way we did them. <laughs> the local they, tracks. Yeah, the local track. Well, they run us through a rock quarry with big rocks and stuff, and uh, uh, that's exaggerating, but it wasn't, wasn't smooth, fast tracks like we were used to. So you've been able to take um, all of your experiences uh, with the equipment and turn it into what is now Van Leeuwen Enterprises. Yeah. And what, is, what exactly are you guys doing over here? It's, it's, a, it's a huge facility with um, a lot of parts and pieces and a lot of artwork. Tell us about Van Leeuwen. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's what, this is what makes me happy. This place is running. I, he took me through, a, through, a, through the place, and like everybody's working. Everybody's doing things. Like it's, It is a nonstop. Well, yeah, the boss was coming by. You don't know what's going on right now while we've got him in this little room. Yeah, they're probably all taking a nap. <laughs> well, you know, if, if you do what you love to do, you'll never work again the rest of your life. Yeah, you're right. I get up in the morning, and I, I, love, I love what I'm doing. I love motorcycles. And, um, uh, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, it's, uh, I don't, I don't even know, uh, it's like a, a guy going to work if he's a painter, he gets paid all day for painting. Sure. But, uh, uh, I get to go to work every day and I'm selling motorcycle stuff, uh, tires, tubes, plugs, helmets, jackets to, to all the motorcycle people that are all my friends. And, um, all my buddies come here and buy, buy the motorcycle stuff. And my son is the president of the company. My youngest son is the vice president, and I get to work with my two two boys every day. And I'm driving down the freeway just whistling Dixie every day. Can't wait to get here. I mean, it's it's fun. It's fun. Enjoy it. And uh, uh, I mean, if if you're doing what you love to do and get paid for it, <laughs> what a score, huh? Yeah, what a score. Mm-hmm. Um, so you guys, uh, I mean, how long has this company been active? Since seventy uh, five. Yeah, when I got out of the record business yeah. with Michael Nesbeth, I started this company right away. And um, <clears throat> and I covered the six western states. And um, uh, I'd, I'd go on the road for six weeks, come home, change my clothes, call my orders in, go do it again for six weeks. And uh, I mean, I'm driving through Wyoming and Arizona and on the way through New Mexico to Albuquerque. And I'm, and I'm just laughing like hell. I'm going, oh, <laughs> this is great. I get paid for it. You know, I was, I was going on the road, and I and, and then, say, I was only a couple years off the racetrack, so when I'd go into the stores, you know, everybody would say, hey, Skip Van Loon's out front, Skip Van Loon's out front. And then, and then I, it, it, more than I'd like to admit, they they would get their local racer, you know, always call them up and say, Skip's coming to town, and the local racer would be there who had been around this racetrack 300 times, and they'd always get me out there to race race their local hotshot. Yeah, and I get skinned up and beat up, and <laughs> but it was fun. Yeah, you're enjoying what you do. Mm-hmm. So you guys deal with a whole bunch of equipment manufacturers. Um, well, first of all, let me let me make sure I got this straight. What exactly do you guys do? Like, what is your involvement? Are you uh, your housing and doing wholesales for uh, uh, manufacture uh, uh, racing equipment manufacturing companies? Yes, uh, we're a we're a wholesale distributor. We buy from manufacturers. When I first started this company, 95% of the stuff I, I bought uh, was American-made. Now 95% of it is imported from Taiwan, Korea, Japan, um, uh, all overseas. And uh, we buy it, and, and we sell it to all the Honda dealers all over the United States, 
Honda, Harley, Yamaha, Kawasaki, Suzuki. And uh, <clears throat> another bike really come on strong lately is passing some of the big bikes is uh, KTM. They got big numbers now. And um, so so you have to, you know, buy helmets and jackets and stuff that's color-coordinated to the bike. So KTM is orange, so we got a lot of orange stuff now. But uh, 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 And the industry has really, really changed a lot. When I first got in the industry, uh, uh, like... Bill Robertson Honda and Beaverton Honda and, and um, Burt Suzuki, you know, were my big dealers. And then it went to the accessory stores, which really made the dealers crazy. You know, cycle parts stores. And I'd say, and they'd say to me, if you sell to cycle parts stores, don't come in here. And I'd say, well, until you turn your counters around and make it self, 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 self help, self service. Then I got a call on the cycle parts stores because they're selling big numbers. Right. The motorcycle store used to be, you know, a counter and everything was behind the counter. Well, when when the self sell, you know, put out like a grocery store, people could touch the stuff. Those guys were really starting to sell the numbers. So then, it, and then I got over that hump, and then the, and then another ten years down the road, they say to me, uh, Skip, uh, you can't sell to the mail order houses. If you're selling mail mail order houses, uh, I, I'm not going to buy from you. I'd say, well, geez, uh, mail order house has really got the big numbers now. You know, they're they're selling a lot of stuff, and uh, you know, here it is, uh, 15 years later again, and this is this is what scares me, and and the whole industry is scared of it, is and it's happened in the golf business, the snow ski business, the water ski business, uh, 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 surf, you know, all the specialty things, uh, is the uh, Online guys are taking it over. Yeah, it's happening in most industries. I mean, yes. if you're not on the cusp of electronic communication and business, you yeah, know, you can, it's, it's just tough. Um, let me let me ask you this though: What kind of revolutions are happening? Like what in, in terms of equipment these days? Um, like, is it newer plastics? Is it lighter weight materials that have uh, stronger breaking points? Things like that. What kind of things do you look for when you're dealing when you're handling working with some of these manufacturers? Well. In the motorcycle business, um, the number one selling product, volume-wise and dollar-wise, every year is helmets. Number two is tires, and they go back and forth, helmets and tires, helmets and tires. Those are the two, two, best, two number one selling gross-selling gross products in the market. And uh, tires, they, made, they make big strides in tires now. It's just crazy. But... Uh, what uh, what what I sell is helmets, mostly a lot of helmets, and uh, uh, and uh, like uh, we have this new Swomi helmet. When we when we walk out of here, I'm going to put a Swomi helmet in your hand. It uh, that baseball hat. It doesn't weigh, weigh much more than that baseball hat. Uh, carbon fiber da 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 material. I mean, it's so light. Uh, you can't. You, uh, you, uh, you won't think it, w- it would be any good. Now they got helmets. Uh, they're experimenting with helmets with with a floating liner, uh, which got little suction cups on it. So uh, uh, you know, if if you get an impact in the front, you know the, the the liner floats up. You know, it's not the impact that kills you when your when your brain slams in the front. It when it when it slams backwards against the back of the thing is where you get the the head injuries that kill you. So um, um, helmets, that's why you see, you'll see the helmets I show you. They got, now they got real light styrofoam in there. 
and they got, got it channeled out so it compresses better, easier. And uh, what happened is when helmets first started make when they first started coming out with helmets, uh, uh, they, they come up with this uh, helmet, a standard for automotive uh, use. And uh, they, they called it the Snell standard. And uh, the Snell standard <clears throat> has, has one real downfall for motorcycles. It's because you have to impact the helmet twice on the same spot. It has to absorb, uh, uh, you know, uh, 500 Gs for less than two milliseconds. Well, uh, that's on DOT, Department of Transportation. I think that's the best standard. Uh, but Snell, uh, because a guy in a car, he's strapped in the car and he gets an impact. Well, he can hit the roll bar, pow, pow, in the same spot twice. On a motorcycle, you ain't ever going to hit the same spot twice. It's like lightning hitting the same spot twice. Ain't going to happen. So that limited us to making better helmets for a long time. So uh, so now, the, uh, so we're, all the HEP manufacturing companies now are going uh, a European standard, ECE. Snell is losing a lot of its mystique now. It's not, they're, they're losing the hold they had on, on the industry. Have you ever, or known anybody to ever have like participated in stunts for feature films and television, things like that? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of these guys, uh, a lot of the motorcycle guys, uh, are, are stuntmen in the in the industry. Um, um, Does that mean they have their SAG cards as well? I believe oh, that's yeah. the stunt stunt. I have guy. a SAG card. You got a SAG, SAG card? card? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, well, I did it for stunts originally, and then as as I became more of a name, then I started doing commercials. I did uh, uh, Pacific Telephone and Canada Dry, and I did a lot of commercials and. I see why those guys do commercials. I mean, you go to that mailbox <laughs> twice a week, and there's a uh, $500 checks in there from all over the country. It's crazy. So commercials, uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. But uh, 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 the entertainment, you know, uh, guys, when when their union come in and started giving those guys residuals, that's really what what, what made those guys uh, the big bucks. So you have a lot of stunt stunt players that you know that went off to go do some of these commercials, and yourself included, feature films and television, so that they could make extra income on the side. Mm-hmm. Do you think that those were safer jobs to have than the ones they were doing uh, on a regular basis? Uh, yeah, because they're you know that the, those stunt guys are pretty uh, uh, pretty well uh, uh, controlled. They uh, take care of each other. Yeah, they do. They do. And uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Gene LaBelle. One of the most famous stunt guys that ever lived. Not off the top of my head, but go okay. ahead. He's uh, the toughest man in the world. He was on the cover of Men's Magazine. Gina Bell uh, uh, wrote uh, seven books on martial arts. Uh, Taekwondo, Kung Fu, all of them. He's, uh, I got all his books. Good friend of mine. He's a good motorcycle racer. He's old now. He's 85, 80-some. But uh, he was uh, uh, really big doing motorcycle stunts. Uh, but Eakins did was really big in, in the stunts. He did Steve McQueen's uh, The Great Escape. He was the guy that jumped a motorcycle over the fence. And um, uh, Gary Davis, a lot of those guys went over went out to do stunts full-time now. Yeah, that uh, definitely became a spinoff for, it sounds like it became a spinoff for lots of players that were racing and doing some of that stuff to have a, a new source of income. Yeah. Um, I know. I heard old stories of that when they were making the original Dukes of Hazard. One of the guys um, that did 
one like there was a jump that they that, that the stunt players from Dukes of Hazard said, no, we can't do this. We're not going to do this. But there was this local guy named Cougar Easley who got involved. He he ended up being a when I met him, he was an electrician on some big budget horrible 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 <laughs> movie in Louisiana um, and he was a, quite a riot but with a name like Cougar Easley you imagine he's got a little personality yeah <laughs> so Cougar apparently said he's a local guy and there's some gorge or bluff or whatever they're trying to, to jump and and uh, the stunt players from Dukes of Hazard, you know, the stunt coordinator, the AD, or and the stunt guys, they say, no, we're not going to do this. And and uh, and Cougar, for whatever reason, I don't know why he was there already, but he injected himself in the conversation, saying, "Oh, I did that all the time. No problem. We got this. No problem." And that's how I understand he came to like get into the business was because he knew how to drive a car over a bluff, you know, and and you know make the jump on the other side. Yeah. And when the, when the guys didn't want to do it, but he had done it so much as a kid and a young adult that he just found his way in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes kind of the stories develop like that. Yeah. Well, you know, when you watch movies, you wonder how much of that is special effects or, or if it's a real deal. Nowadays, there's wire removal for things like that for yeah. safety. Okay. One time, back in 74, uh, uh, I lived in the Hollywood Hills on Bennett Drive. And um, this guy come up, a friend of mine, uh, said, "Hey, Skip, uh, can I spend? Can I stay here for the weekend? I'll, I'll pay for it." And I says, "No, you can stay here. That's okay." Well, it was a, like the guy who came for dinner and stayed all week. He stayed with me at that house, and I moved to Rand Drive. Rand Drive. He stayed at that house, and when I moved up to Mulholland Drive, where I live right now, yeah, uh, he lived there for five years, <laughs> and he became famous, really famous. He was a cartoonist. He worked at Hanna Barbera, and uh, he became better and better and better. And uh, Larry Corby, a good friend of mine who was big in the uh, uh, commercials, uh, said he went to digital digital input or whatever, digital domain. Uh-huh. And he said he walked on the end of the hall and there was John Bruno, was the president of digital domain. John Bruno got an Academy Award for the Abyss. And I'm thinking... Uh, John Bruno, I've been racing motorcycles my whole life. More people saw you on one night than saw me 13 years of racing motorcycles. Yeah. Well, uh, he did uh, Schwarzenegger's movies, uh, Two Lies. You know, yeah. And and uh, John Bruno, uh, and he, you know he was a motorcycle rider too. But uh, but uh, I wonder if he did Schwarzenegger's motorcycle jump in to- in Terminator Two, where he jumps off the end of that br- uh, the bridge. Well, no, John didn't do the stunt work. He did the special effects. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, he he was. Uh, uh, well, when you see True Lies, that John Bruno is a big name on the screen. I have to go back and watch that. That's a yeah. good one. Mm. Um, okay, so um, many, many, many years later, yeah. you get inducted into the Hall of Fame, nineteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. How has that affected you? Affected you over the last fifteen years? Like, okay, well, so I was, I was. First of all, it was the greatest thrill of my entire life, and I was very humble. To be brought in with, with all those world champions, and and it was, uh, uh, it was just a, a thrill, and um, I imagine it's it's it's, on the, in in the motorcycle business, it's like winning an Academy Award, you know, it was the biggest deal the motorcycle has to give you, and um, uh, uh, I'm uh, I still feel very 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 proud and humbled to be in that in the Motorcycle Hall of Fame. And Dick Hammer, the guy I told you about, we first started racing together, he got inducted to the Hall of Fame right after I did. <laughs> and we got a Dick Hammer Award now. He had terminal cancer. 
He since died. And so we got the Dick Hammer Award. And on this Dick Hammer Award is all the guys throughout the years that have uh, been the best at what they did. Sort of like a lifetime achievement. Yeah. 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 Even though you beat him most of the time. You're on record saying that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hey, Hammer, if you can hear me, I beat you. <laughs> you still feeling good about it? Sounds like it, Skip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to, to just share with us, man. We really appreciate it. There's a lot of really good stuff here. And uh, it's been a great pleasure getting to know you and taking the time. This is lots of fun. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you guys for doing it. And um, I enjoyed every minute of it. And hope we reach uh, the movie people, the entertainment people, commercial people, and the motorcycle people. We're bringing them all in. Yeah. Thanks so much, Skip. Thank you, Lewis. Brian. So, Lewis, for argument's sake, if I wanted to find out more about Cinematic Community, how would I go about that? This is a hypothetical question you're asking? Absolutely. Do you have some kind of web presence? Is there a way for me to look you up on Facebook? Oh, absolutely. You can just check us out uh, in the search bar for Cinematic Community, and we'll pop right up. There, I would highly recommend that if you did want to hear more from us, you would like us on Facebook. And then um, I would actually take a look at our website, which has all of this great podcasting stuff, all of our great blogs, which we uh, which we have practically three or four times a week. We've got stuff going out on Twitter and stuff going out on Facebook. Um, but our website is www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. Can't I just go to iTunes or on my Apple TV or a podcast on my phone and just put in Cinematic Community as a search uh, search parameter? As easy as it could be? Yeah, absolutely. That'll help you. And once you do log on and you do check it out, Subscribe. Oh, I should subscribe and rate it highly? I think so. Five stars and a little comment at the bottom. I think that's what the people want to see. If I go on Facebook, should I like it? Should I like the page so that I get updates in the future? That's genius. Because I'm pretty sure that Facebook lets you see stuff based on how often it's liked and looked at. Yeah. So if you wanted to uh, hear more of it, I would definitely do that. Excellent. Yes. We're well on our way. <laughs>